0: Well, it's, uh, it's great to be here. Um, I sort of have this love affair with America, so it's, it's always wonderful coming. And, um, and of course, it's always a chance for me to report back to England on how the colonies are, are doing. So <laughs> it's, um, it, it, it works both ways. Um, we're we're going to have to dive straight in because we, we, we do have so much to cover. And what we're going to be looking at is the whole thing about tradition. We're going to be looking at the whole thing. What tradition should there be? What tradition shouldn't there be? Now, the Greek word for tradition uh, that you get in the Bible is paradisis, and it simply means a handing down or a handing on. So in tradition, what I mean by this is simply established practice. And I want to show you that the Bible mentions two types of tradition it mentions two types of established practice. Uh, There is a a third type that we're going to look at very, very briefly, but uh, what we're going to be concentrating on are the two types of tradition that the Bible speaks of. Now, if you find 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and and verse 2, and we're going to look at tradition type 1. And the first tradition that the Bible speaks about is what I'm going to call God-ordained tradition. We're going to look at the fact that there are traditions, there are established practices that the Bible says are God-ordained, things that he actually wants. And in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 2, we have this. Paul writes and he says, I praise you for remembering me in everything and holding to the teachings. Now, scrub teachings, I'm, I'm, I'm using the NIV, the nearly inspired version, and this is an example of that because the Greek word there is not teachings. There's a completely different Greek word for that. The Greek word here is paradisis. It should read traditions. The RSV gets it right. So what Paul is saying, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just As I pass them on to you. So here's Paul saying, I have given you traditions. You're keeping them. Well done guys. Now and if you go to 2 Thessalonians. Remember we're looking at God ordained established practice. And uh, in 2 Thessalonians. And if you find chapter 2 and verse 15. And again Paul says this. So then brothers... Stand firm and hold to the teachings, wrong, parabasis, stand firm and hold to the traditions we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth, that's as the apostles taught and preached, or by letter. And of course, it was the letters that made up. The New Testament. So there, Paul is saying, there are traditions that you've received from us, and of course these traditions are now written down in the New Testament, and he says, hold firm to them. You are to observe them. And then if you just go over again in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 6. And he says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching, no, practices, who does not live according to the tradition that you received from us. So what we have here is quite clearly the New Testament speaks about traditions, about established practices that we are meant to be adhering to. Now, the second type of tradition that the New Testament speaks about is tradition which is not God-ordained, but which actually goes against what the Bible teaches. Go to Matthew 15. Matthew chapter 15. And find firstly verse 3. Matthew 15 and verse 3. And Jesus replied, Why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? And in verse 6, still Jesus speaking, Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. So, here we have Jesus referring to traditions, to established practices that not only hadn't come from himself, not only hadn't come from the Word of God, but which actually nullify the Word of God, they go against the Word of God. So what we've got here, we have unbiblical traditions which go against biblical traditions and therefore become anti-biblical traditions. Uh, Go to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 7. And I'm going to read verse 8 to 9, and then verse 13. Jesus said, You have let go of the commands of God and are holding to the traditions of men. Now, notice, the Bible talks about holding these traditions. It's like holding on to something. You're either holding on to something that God has given you, or you're holding on to something that he hasn't given you. But you've got to drop what he hasn't given you before you can grasp on to what he has given you. And what Jesus is talking about here, he's saying, look, you've let go of what God wants, and you're holding what he doesn't want. Okay, um... Verse 9 he says you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. And then in verse 13 he says thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. So there we see quite clearly there is biblical tradition established practices that God wants us to observe but we are seeing here there's another type of tradition that not only doesn't come from the Lord but which is anti-biblical. If you keep these practices then by definition you are not adhering to the practices that God himself wants you to. Now, the third type of tradition, uh, and we're just going to mention this very, very briefly, is simply tradition or established practice which is neutral. It's neither biblical nor is it against the Bible. It's stuff that really doesn't matter. For instance, um, at our, our own fellowship, the church back home that we are part of, traditionally on Tuesday evening we come together for Bible study. And Traditionally, we come together on Friday nights and we spend the evening in prayer together. Now, that's not set in stone. Uh, it's very convenient. Uh, the Bible doesn't say you've got to have Bible study on Tuesday nights. And as long as we're open to change it, if we feel the law's leading us to, that's no problem at all. So you've got neutral traditions, which are neither here nor there. And as long as they don't ever end up going against anything the law's doing, that doesn't matter. So neutral tradition, just put on one side. That is, that is not what we're, we're about uh, in these talks. And what we're going to be concentrating on a great deal is number two. We're going to be concentrating on the traditions which go against what God wants. Because it's these traditions that have damaged the Christian church so badly and which have prevented us doing the traditions that the Lord wants us to do. Now, the place that we've got to start, if you turn to Matthew chapter 15, the place that we've got to start is at something called the tradition of the elders. Now, I'm just going to read Matthew 15 verses 1 to 2. You probably don't know what they are. You will by the time we finish today. In fact, you will by the time this first talk has has finished. And in Matthew 15, verses one and two, listen to this, some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, "Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat." Now here it is in the Bible, the tradition of the elders. And uh, these people are come to Jesus and say, "Hey, you're not keeping the tradition of the elders. What's wrong with you? Uh, go over to Mark's gospel. Let's just see this again. Mark chapter 7 and the first five verses. And Mark says, and Mark was written very much with Gentiles, the Romans in mind, and so there's a fuller explanation. Matthew was written to the Jews. They knew all about the tradition of the elders. Mark wasn't, so there's a bit of explanation here which is useful. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered round Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean. That is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they watch, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. And there's Mark just padding this out a bit for his Roman audience, as it were, uh, you know, sort of saying that, that that's kind of, you know, the Jews have all these tradition of the elders. Now then, we need to look at this. And um, we need to realise this. And it might come as a surprise to you. The conflict between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. And oh boy, was there a conflict. You don't have to read far through the Gospels to find out there was a conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of the day. But you've got to understand that this conflict was not to do with the Old Testament law of Moses. And most Christians think it is. It isn't. Jesus did not get into conflict over the law of Moses. And the reason is, he never broke the Mosaic law. So because he never broke it, no one was against him on that count. So if we say that Jesus never got into conflict with people over the law of Moses... All right like the one or two very small examples but if we're saying that the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees wasn't about the Mosaic law then we got to ask the question so what on earth was it about what was the fight about and the answer is the tradition of the elders and of course the answer to this is that although Israel and its religious leaders held the belief that the final authority was the Old Testament law of God, was the covenant with Moses. Although in theory that's what they taught and believed, the reality was actually different. And I'm going to show you that the religious leaders during the time of Jesus held that the final authority was not actually the Old Testament at all but was this system of belief and practice that the New Testament refers to as being the tradition of the elders. And so if this thing was the cause of such conflict between Jesus and Israel, and indeed was the reason why Israel eventually rejected him and would not receive him as their Messiah, then we need to understand a little bit what on earth is this whole thing about the tradition of the elders. Now, it was known in Israel and still is uh, by different names. It it was referred to as the tradition of the elders. We've we've seen that in the scripture. It was referred to as the oral law. Uh, It was referred to as Pharisaic law or Pharisaic Judaism. It was called tantalizingly, this will interest you, the laws of the fence and the laws of the of the hedge. You think, what on earth is it then? Now, this whole thing goes back to the time of Ezra. So we've got to do a little bit of uh, history homework here. Now, you'll remember that there came the time when Israel was carted off into Babylonian captivity, destroyed as a nation, scattered to the four winds, as it were, up in uh, the Babylonian Empire. And throughout the Old Covenant, uh, the Lord gave them various cycles of discipline that if they broke his law and if they kept going against him repeatedly then different levels of discipline and chastisement would come upon them as a nation and the ultimate the final level of discipline was that Israel would be carted off into captivity and that is exactly what happened so therefore Around the time of Ezra, when Israel is being returned to the land, the the captivity lasted 70 years, that was uh, prophesied. But as they were coming back into the land, the, the thing that was on their mind more than anything else was this. Look, we went into captivity because we disobeyed the law of God. We disobeyed the Mosaic law and so what happened was at the time of Ezra they, they, they started to think if we really educate everyone in, in the 613 commands in the law of Moses to really make sure that everyone in the land knows that these are God's commands and we mustn't go against them and I think if we stay faithful and stay obedient we won't go into captivity again and so therefore the regular reading and exposition of the law of Moses was introduced in a public way in Israel and the whole push behind it was to teach and get everyone to understand the law of God and to to live in obedience to it and you can read read all that in uh, Ezra and in Nehemiah and what happened was that Ezra uh, began um, the school of the scribes, or to give them their, 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 their Hebrew name, the Sufreme, the scribes. And it was Ezra who set these guys up. And what their job was, was that what they were all about was, was, was to expand and to teach the 613 Mosaic laws. In such a way so to as encourage everyone to live in obedience to them and to stay faithful to God because they didn't ever want to go into captivity again. In effect, these guys were Bible teachers. Now that's a real good thing that Ezra did. He started to train up Bible teachers. And I know that that's a real good thing that he did. Because I'm one. Good thing, all right. He wanted everyone to understand what the scripture said. But of course, what you find throughout history is that when you've got someone who's got a vision and set that in motion, it tends, as the years go by, as, as, as other men follow on, it gets corrupted. And what happened after the time of Ezra, a later generation of these guys, the scribes, the supreme, came onto the scene. And they, they kind of felt that a different... A different approach was going to be needed remember that their greatest paranoia was ever going into captivity again and that was fair enough it was right they didn't want to and they desperately wanted to keep God's law as a nation and so what these guys said look just expounding just teaching the Old Testament isn't enough now as As soon as anyone says that, little warning bells should start going. Because these guys said, no, we need something more than merely teaching the word of God. And what they proposed is they said, look, the law of God has got all these commands and we must obey them. And they said, what we'll do is we'll build a hedge around the law. Or they said, we're going to put a fence around. Around the law. And what they were meaning by this was that if they surrounded the law of God with secondary laws, then they said you might end up breaking these other laws that we come up with, but it will stop you short before you actually end up breaking one of the mosaic laws that came from God. So the point is, they said let's build a fence or a hedge of secondary laws around the original 613. And the idea is that these will stop you. If someone's careering towards breaking one of the 613 laws, they've got to get through these hedges and fences first. And maybe as they break these secondary laws, it might pull them up sharp and stop them actually impinging on one of the 613 mosaic ones. So in effect, Think of it like this: you know, on your aircraft carriers, where you know where the jets come in. Obviously, under normal circumstances, I mean, a jet needs a quite a, a long landing strip to land. But on an aircraft carrier, there's not much room. And of course, as the jets come in, they've got this, this thing hanging down at the back, haven't they? And there's all these you know metal straps that go across, and it hooks on, and it stops the jet before it goes off the end of the aircraft carrying to the sea. And that is exactly the idea behind this proposal that the Supreme came up with to hedge the law about. Or well, think of it a bit like you have the speed bumps here. We have them in England, don't we? These, these bumps that you've got to go over that slow you up and bring you to a halt. And that is exactly what they uh, said they were going to do. And what they did is they developed a system of uh, thought or a system of logic which was called pil Power logic. Now, pil Power logic, pil Power means pepper. And it, it was, that, that phrase was kind of chosen because the idea was, was, was sharpness, distinctiveness. I mean, if you've got pepper in your mouth, you really know that you've got pepper in your mouth. And they wanted a logic that would be very, very incisive, very, very sharp. And what it was designed to do was to find ways to see how many secondary laws could be logically derived from each of the 613 mosaic laws. So, can you see the idea? You take each of the mosaic laws, and then you, you, you through logic, devise how many secondary laws can you get out of each one. And so you build these fences around the original law. So, you might end up breaking these fence or these hedge laws, but hopefully they've brought you up short so that you don't actually break the law of Moses itself. And that's what the whole thing was designed to do. Now, let me give you examples of of what this pill power logic came up with. Now... In Exodus twenty-three nineteen, don't bother to turn to it. We have a, a, a rather, a rather strange law, and it says this. And this is one of the Mosaic laws inspired by God. And it said, "Do not boil a kid in its mother's milk." I think what on earth is that about? Um, now, the thing is that when Israel was going into the promised land I mean, obviously the Canaanites were there all these pagan nations who were up to their eyeballs with occultism and satanism and stuff like this idolatry of the worst you know kind and a lot of the laws of Moses not all of them but but, but a whole section of the laws of Moses were actually there to make sure that Israel didn't even end up doing something that even looked like something the Canaanites were doing and there was a Canaanitish ritual a fertility rite. That was all to do. You boiled a kid in its mother's milk, and then you sprinkled it over the fields, and this brought the blessing of the gods on your harvest. So, here we simply have um, an occultic, pagan, you know, sort of idolatrous practice that the Canaanites were doing, and and, and God gives Israel this law. Not that there's anything wrong with boiling a kid in its mother's milk, but the point was to keep them away from even the appearance. Of what the Canaanites were up to. So the intent of the law was simply to stop Israel doing anything that even looked like idolatry. And uh, when you get some of these strange laws, um, you know, sort of like your, you know, that often explains it. You know, I mean all, all the things in, you know, in the laws about, you know, that women are unclean at certain times of the month. This is not objective, you know, that sort of like that holds for eternity. What it's talking about is that the Canaanites were shot through with fertility rights which were all tied up with sexuality all tied up with immorality and times of the month and all this sort of thing and so the law just just wanted to make sure that Israel wasn't into anything that even looked like that stuff so that was the intent of law now enter pill power logic all right they see that the law of Moses says, do not boil a kid in its mother's milk. Now, that's obvious to them, it's obvious to me, it's obvious to you what that means. You do not get a big cauldron bubbling away and then put the kid in and, and cook it in the milk that's come from its mother. But pill power logic goes like this. They say, look, in the normal course of events, you, you'll eat goat. I've eaten goat before. It's not very nice, but it's quite edible. And they say, in the normal course of events, we eat goat meat. And in the normal course of events, we also drink goat's milk. So you might sit down and you have a nice plate, you know, goat bourguignon or something like that. You wash it down with a a nice, you know, chateau goat's milk. All right, afterwards. And what they said was this. There's a problem. And the problem is that if you eat goat, and then drink goat's milk, there's a chance, it's not definite, but there's just a chance that the milk you wash your goat meat down with might just be from the mother of the goat you've just eaten. And if it is, both go down into the stomach, the digestive system process, heats it up, you've boiled a kid in its mother's milk and will be carted off into captivity. So they said, oh, no, no. So what they did is they introduced the laws of the separation of meat and milk products. So that you don't eat meat or anything dairy in the same time span. There has to be enough time elapsed between that whether you've drunk the milk, dairy stuff, eaten cheese or whatever, or whether you've eaten goat meat, it's got to be enough time for what's already gone in to have completely been digested and passed out of you. So these were the fence laws, the hedge laws of the separation of meat and milk products. So we now have laws about what you can eat together and when that didn't actually come into the law of Moses. Because the law of Moses didn't say any of that. It just said you mustn't, you know, sort of boil a kid in its mother's milk. But you see, it went further than that. You see, they had to deal with the problem of the time element. You mustn't eat these things together. But, but you could fall into the trap another way. Because, obviously, especially as they were going through the wilderness, I mean, you'd, you'd kind of probably just have one plate. And you kind of eat your dinner and then you give it a wash and then at night you eat your tea and you give it a wash and then the next day you have your breakfast and then you give your plate the wash, you see. And they said, oh, goodness, now no, there's a problem here. You see, the problem is this. You might, you might have a nice, nice lump of cheese before you go to bed, right? Just, just, just for sweet dreams, you know? And, uh, and, and so you've, you've, you've had some cheese, nice cheese salad, right? And you wash your, wash your plate, you see. And and but then the next day for dinner you might you might decide to have goat curry or something like that. And of course they said, Oh, or well, hang on. Because they said, look, no matter how much you wash a plate, there might be a speck of something left on it that's gone hard. So they said, look, if you've if you've had a cheese salad before you go to bed, you've washed your plate, but there might be a little bit of cheese that is stuck on the plate that you don't know about. And 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 then the next day, you might have a nice goat chop or something like that. And, and, and then as you're eating it, that little bit of cheese comes off the plate and you eat it with the goat meat. And they said, now, it's highly unlikely, but it could be that that bit of cheese had been made from the milk of the mother of the goat that you've just eaten the next day. And they said, if it is, it goes down into the stomach, the digestive process heats it all up, you've boiled a kid in its mother's milk. Oh, we'll be carted off into captivity, we've broken the law of Moses. Can you see the way that this worked? So then, the laws were introduced of separate dishes for meat and milk products. So now, they would have a set of plates for dairy, anything dairy... And another set of plates and cutlery, as it were, for anything meat. And all this because the law of Moses said you mustn't boil a kid in its mother's milk. Can you see the original command of God is getting lost in the middle of all these secondary traditions and commands and laws which weren't actually anything to do with the word of God itself. Can you see fence laws are being added? But this was happening to every one of the Mosaic laws. Now then, let me tell you, to one Sabbath command, and in the 613 laws of Moses, there is one Sabbath command, and it's in what we call the Ten Commandments, it's in the first ten. To one Sabbath law was added 1,000 secondary laws or thereabouts now I want to show you four, just four right? as they built these hedges these fences around the sabbath law four of the things that they said you mustn't do on the sabbath was one you mustn't reap on the sabbath because of course the whole point was that the sabbath was a day of rest so you mustn't reap which is, you know, sort of, there's, there's the cornfield, so you take the head off of the stalk. You, you mustn't do that. You mustn't thresh, which is when you sort of, like, grind it so that the chaff separates from the wheat. All right. blah Then thirdly, you mustn't thresh, which is when you kind of get air going over it and it blows the chaff away, so you're just left with the good stuff. And then you mustn't store, i.e. put it in your barns and there's your harvest because all this was work on the sabbath so you mustn't reap you mustn't thresh you mustn't winnow and you mustn't store now therefore pill power logic has these four Laws derived from the Sabbath law. These laws weren't in the Sabbath law, they weren't in the law of God, they weren't in the Mosaic law, but they've got four more derived from it. But then they look at it and pill Power Logic works that little bit more, and then it says, of course, and this means also that you mustn't walk in a field on the Sabbath. Logical, isn't it? Well it is if you understand Pill Power logic. Because if you walk in a field on the grass even at the side of the field if you do that on the Sabbath then there is just a chance I mean it's not, a def, you know, it's not definite but there is a chance that there might be a stray bit of corn or wheat there now if there is you might tread on it and as you tread on it it pulls the head off You've separated the wheat from the stalk. My goodness, you're reaping. And also, at the same time, the action of your, you know, sandal on it as you walk over it might also grind it so that not only have you separated the the wheat from the stalk, you've now separated the wheat from the chaff because you've trod on it and it's, it's ground it. Now, by golly gosh... You're guilty of, um, of uh, thrashing, But not only that, as you walk away... The hem of your garments... They didn't wear trousers. It would have worked if they wore flares. But, I mean, they, they, they wore these gowns, didn't they? And as you walk... By, the swinging of the gra- gown creates a breeze. And it blows the chaff away. Oh, my goodness. Now you're thrashing, But there's more. If a passing bird sees this tasty morsel that you've prepared for it. It might come down and eat it. You've stored that grain. You've broken all four of these laws that you can't break on the Sabbath. Can you see what's happening here? Laws and practices being added and added and added, theoretically for a very good reason, but nevertheless these laws being added and added and added. Now this was stage one in the development of the tradition of the elders. This was the stage of the sufre, the scribes. And there was an underlying principle at this point in the proceedings. And the underlying principle was this. A scribe, a sofer, that's the Hebrew word, by the way, don't, don't hold me responsible for the pronunciation of Hebrew or Greek words. Um, it just kind of sounds impressive if I use them, doesn't it, that's all. But, I mean, I don't speak Greek or Hebrew or anything, so don't hold me responsible. It just sounds good. You know. I'll try and get anti-disestablishmentarianism in later. And, and so the principle was a scribe could disagree with a scribe about their fence laws. So they could have a good old argument about any of the laws that I've said. They could disagree which are the best ones to do the job. But the principle was still, but they couldn't disagree with the original law of Moses. So they were acknowledging that the original law of Moses was God's word, was absolute, was totally authoritative, and that you mustn't mess with it. They still had that very clearly in their minds. In other words, what they were saying is breaking the Mosaic law is a sin. But breaking these secondary laws isn't a sin. They're only there to stop you actually breaking the original laws that they're surrounding. One could argue, so far, so good in a kind of a legalistic way. But it went on to a later stage because things develop, things evolve. And stage two happened when a later generation of rabbis came along called the Tanaim. Now, im in Hebrew is a plural, so you'd have a Tanaim, a group of Tanaim, or you'd have a Tana. And it means teachers. These are the teachers and they came on the scene remember they're all about this same thing this principle of fence laws is now firmly established amongst the religious powers that be um, in Israel and, um, and what, what, what they decided they looked at it and they thought that all the hedges and fences of the supreme had too many holes in them they thought no it's too loose it's too easy to get through And what they did is they proceeded to build another hedge of laws around the hedge of laws that the Supreme had put there. So we started off with the word of God. Then we got the hedge laws, the fence built around that of the Supreme. Now the Tanayim came along and they built another one around it. I mean, we're getting a a veritable bullseye here. And can you see, the word of God is fast vanishing away down a black hole in the middle. And these guys came along and they had another hedge erected. Pill-Pow logic, more laws derived, etc., etc. But, and this is the most important thing. The Tanaim changed the principle of operation. You'll remember the Supreme, Fence 1, Hedge 1, they fully acknowledged that they could argue and debate their laws because they acknowledged that they were merely a man-made device to stop you breaking God's law. So remember, they said, look, our laws are not absolute. We can argue about our laws, but God's law is inviolable. That is absolute and authoritative. But when the Tana'im came along and built their hedge around the hedge of the Sofreem, what they said was, a Tanah can disagree with a Tanah about the hedge of the tanaim." But they could not argue about the law of the Sufreim because that was absolute. Can you see what happened? They canonized they made absolute the fence laws of the Supreme, who had come several generations (coughs) before them. So that what you have in effect is that they said, the final authority is the law, the fence of the Supreme. So the point is, we now have two final authorities operating in Israel. The Old Testament word of God and the fence laws developed by the Sufri. And just to top it off, eventually, another generation rose up sometime later called the Amoraim, the commentators, who started the whole process over again. Now Jesus came on the scene in Israel just about the time that the Tanaim had canonized and made absolute the first fence so Jesus came on the scene at that point in Israel's history where the religious leaders had established that God's law, the Mosaic law was absolute and authoritative As was all these secondary fence laws developed by the suffering so that is the point at which Jesus came on the scene the tradition of the elders was considered in Israel to be binding and of God and absolute so that if you broke it you were sinning as surely as if you broke one of the 613 laws of Moses. Now just to complete the history here. Um, in AD 200 or thereabouts, a, a rabbi called Judah Harnassi. Weird name. <laughs> Burris with Job saying that someone's got a weird name. But that's a weird name. okay? He came along and he compiled these existing fence laws into one document which came to be known as the Mishnah and the word Mishnah comes from um, a Hebrew word um, Shana which means to repeat or to teach or to learn because they taught each other things by repetition and indeed that's why it was also called the oral law because it was passed on by repetition and so he did that now, um, eventually, uh, we, we saw the Amoraim came along, and so they were called the commentators. Now, what happened in later generations, other rabbis wrote a commentary. They, you know, they, you know we, we have commentaries of the Bible, but rabbis were writing commentaries on these fence laws, which are now contained in the Mishnah. And that commentary came to be known as the Gemara and Gemara came from, the, uh, came from the Aramaic word which means completion because they saw that the commentary plus the Mishnah okay, was a complete work in itself and then these two works combined together the Mishnah, the laws themselves plus the commentary, the Gemara came to be seen eventually as a complete work as it were in two parts and that as one single work became known as the Talmud Talmud coming from uh, the Hebrew word lamad, which means instruction and I think probably most people realise that when I talk about the Mishnah and the Talmud I'm talking about what orthodox Jews to this day Consider to be their final authority. Now there's another question that we have to ask here, and it's this How on earth did all this get justified? This is happening amongst the one nation that has the inspired Word of God, the Old Testament. And and, and at the time of Jesus, Israel had the completed entire Old Testament. And we've got to ask, how on earth did the religious leaders manage to bring Israel to the point where all this stuff was accepted as being absolutely authoritative and of God? Now then, let me take you back to the fact that I told you that one of the names of this uh, tradition of the elders was the oral law the oral law, i.e. the law that had been spoken. And what they taught, the teaching that developed through the generations was this. They taught that when Moses was on Mount Sinai, receiving the what came to be known as the Mosaic Law, the 613 commands that God gave him, that when he was on Mount Sinai receiving them, He received that law in written form, but they taught that God secretly gave Moses another law. But this other law that God gave him secretly was only to be passed on orally, by word of mouth. The 613 Mosaic laws were written down, becoming initially the Pentateuch, the first, that's my best side. Um, eventually becoming the Pentateuch but they said there was this other law that was given but it was secret and Moses was to pass that on orally now let me tell you this has absolutely no um, accuracy in history whatsoever but what I'm going to do is now actually quote to you from the Mishnah itself now, the Mishnah is, is itself actually broken down into six sections which are called orders um, or sedarim. alright? So the Mishnah comprises of six orders or six sections or, or six sedarim. and these six orders are divided down into a further 63 tractates or right, individual sections, alright? So that, that, that's the way it's actually laid out. Now I'm, I'm going to quote to you um, from from the the, the section uh, called Avot, and, and and that means fathers, all right. And uh, so the tractate called the Fathers, and this is from the fourth section. Uh, okay, which is called Nezikim or Damages. Right, don't worry yourself with that, but just, just so you can go home and check this out for yourself. That it's not just me making it up as I go along, which is what I do if I'm not Bible teaching, by the way. But I'm not making this up as I go along. Now then, this is the quote, okay? This is Avot 10, verse 1. Moses received this law. Now, this is talking about the oral law, the tradition of the elders this is a Mishnah Moses received this law from Mount Sinai and delivered it to Joshua All right Joshua carried on from Moses didn't he Joshua to the elders now by elders they mean the judges remember when Joshua died the judges led Israel through that section of time the elders to the prophets you know Elijah, Elisha, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, blah, 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 all right? And the prophets to the great synagogue. Shall I tell you what the great synagogue was? That's what the supreme were called in the time of Ezra. The great synagogue so here the Mishnah says Moses received this law this oral law this fence law received it from Mount Sinai delivered it to Joshua Joshua to the elders the elders to the prophets and the prophets to the great synagogue so what the Pharisees eventually came to be teaching and Jesus came on the scene in the generation after this teaching was accepted all right. What they were teaching was not that the supreme created this oral law, you know, as an aid to holiness. You know what an aid to holiness is in church discipline: one sin and you're excommunicated. All right? That sort of thing. Okay. They didn't teach that that this law was created by the you know, by the supreme as an aid to keeping God's law. They taught that the supreme revealed this law because now was the time for Israel to receive this revelation that had been given secretly to Moses on Mount Sinai and passed down to Joshua and passed on to the judges and passed on to the prophets and then passed on to the Supreme so the point is this this old law this tradition of the elders is given By the time of Jesus, equal authority with the Old Testament. Because the revelation that they were teaching came through the Supreme. The Supreme just made it up to help people. But what these guys are now saying is that what the Supreme did was brought a fresh revelation to Israel that was authoritative. As the Mosaic law given on Sinai. And the reason that it was as authoritative as the Mosaic law given on Sinai. Was because God gave it secretly to Moses. And all these leaders of Israel had been secretly passing it on. In the hundreds of years that followed. Until the right time came for it to be thrust upon a gullible, sadly to say, Israel. But we've got to understand something here. This is a philosophical point, but it's a very obvious one. Whenever you have the notion of two final authorities, you have to realise that that's a nonsense. It's a nonsense in the same way that you can't have a triangle with four squares. Or you can't have a square with ten sides. If it's got ten sides, it's not a square anymore. If it's got four sides, it's not a triangle. It's just nonsense. It's playing with words. And it is not possible to have two final authorities. You can only have a maximum of one final authority. And I'll tell you why. Because what happens when they disagree? And for anyone who thinks that they've got two final authorities, you haven't, you've got one, and you'll find out which your actual final authority is, because that will be the one that you stick with when it conflicts with the other one. So can you see you cannot have two final authorities because... What happens when they disagree? And if they don't disagree, then they're one, and you've just got one final authority. You see, there won't be a problem. But here there was, because all this disagreed with the actual teaching of the Word of God itself. Do you remember what Jesus said about God and mammon? Money. If you've got two masters, you'll serve one and hate the other. So we've got to ask, Okay, the Old Testament as Scripture as the inspired, authoritative, infallible word of God, as with the New Testament, claimed to be the final authority. Yet the Pharisees were saying that the um, old law, this tradition of the elders, um, this, this fence, this hedge, they were saying, but this also, along with the Old Testament scriptures, is our final authority so we've got to ask a question here and the question is this is there any way we can ascertain for sure which final authority won out because by definition they're going to conflict so how did the tradition of the elders how did the Mishnah how did this oral law handle this problem about what happens when it conflicts with the other final authority the scriptures now then Two more quotes from the Old Mishnah, or you could say Townwood, because Townwood is Mishnah plus Gemara. So Townwood Mishnah to that extent, Mishnah is just more specific, as it were. But uh, another quote, um, you'll find this in Berakot 3.2, two. You'll find it in Sanhedrin eleven three, and if you look at Yevamot eighty nine b to ninety a, all right. So you do that when you get home. And um, this is this is what it says, and I'm quoting. It is more punishable to act against the words of the scribes, the supreme oral law, fence number one it is more punishable to act against the words of the scribes than those of the scriptures that's a quote another one Eruvin 21b Sounds like something the doctor prescribes, doesn't it? But it's one of the bits of the Mishnah. I'm quoting. Give more heed to the words of the rabbis. What The rabbis teaching the oral law. Give more heed to the words of the rabbis than to the words of the law. What's that? Old Testament scripture, law, law of Moses. So, what do we have here? I ask you which one won out. It's obvious. The tradition of the elders was considered to be their final authority, not the word of God at all. They were paying lip service to the word of God being their final authority, but the reality is that they considered the tradition of the elders to have more weight than the Old Testament Scripture, because here they are acknowledging that they go against each other at certain points. And when they go against each other, which one do you obey? You obey the tradition of the elders, not the Old Testament Word of God. So what we have is this. At the time when Jesus came to Israel, came to his own people, Israel, as God's nation, had developed as a religious system whereby they acknowledged the authority of the Old Testament word of God they acknowledged and believed in the authority of scripture but also held very highly this tradition of the elders but in reality the tradition of the elders ended up taking precedence over the word of God. So whenever they had to choose between the word of God and their traditions, they went with these traditions and imposed on it this idea that it was from God as well. So what you've got, when Jesus came onto the scene in Israel, you have a nation under God, you have God's people, a nation under the authority of the Old Testament scripture, and a nation who would acknowledge that the Old Testament Scripture was indeed God's Word and saying it is God's Word and we follow the Lord but at the same time actually going against the Word of God but having developed a teaching that said that it was God leading them to do it because these laws that go against the Word of God came from God as well so Israel had a religious system that enabled you to go against the word of God whilst claiming divine authority <coughs> for so doing. Isn't that convenient? Man's will has taken precedence over God's revelation. Ideas that developed from mere men have ousted ideas that were in actual fact commands from God himself. But God's ways have been pushed out and replaced by man's ways but in such a way that the whole idea is it was God leading them to do it. So the tradition of man usurps and replaces the tradition of God but does so in the name of the Lord himself so they were going against the Bible claiming that God himself was leading them to do so now in the next talk we're going to ask this question what did Jesus make of this tradition of the elders when he hit up against it uh, this this so called this old law this this fence this this hedge this pharisaic judaism we're going to ask what did he make of it and how did he handle himself and others when he came up against it so finish there uh, have a break now and uh, talk to fairly soon for more information contact the Chigwell Christian Fellowship on our website at www.house-church.org.